0: Welcome to Topcast, episode 32, part two of the chapter on choices. And in the last episode, David was describing how certain mathematicians and other people were disappointed by the way in which certain supposedly rational systems would sometimes throw up paradoxes, problems, and things they didn't want the system to have. In other words, they bemoaned the fact that logic could cause problems. They wished that logic wasn't so, that logic didn't cause these issues that they thought were inherently problematic inside of these certain democratic systems. So let's just dive straight into what David has to say about that. He writes, We need something better to wish for, something that is not incompatible with logic, reason, or progress. We have already encountered it. It is the basic condition for a political system to be capable of making sustained progress. Popper's criterion that the system facilitate the removal of bad policies and bad governments without violence. That entails abandoning who should rule as a criterion for judging political systems. The entire controversy about apportionment rules and all other issues in social choice theory has traditionally been framed by all concerned in terms of who should rule. What is the right number of seats for each state or for each political party? What does the group, presumed entitled to rule over its subgroups and individuals, want and what institutions will get it what it wants." Okay, pause there, my reflection. Now, I'm going to go to what Popper himself wrote about this in just a moment, and it's really a timeless point to make, actually, even if it's particularly relevant right now as I'm speaking in uh, 2020. I don't mention much at all, typically, in any of these podcasts or videos that I do, anything about current events. I, I, I attempt to try and avoid current events, because, I, because I'd like this series to stand for itself over time and not be talking about parochial issues that won't be relevant uh, in a few years to come. So hopefully, no matter when you're listening to this, uh, maybe someone's listening to this right now in 2025, 2030, things will still make sense to you. Nothing will be out of context, so to speak. Now, all of that said, I'm going to allow myself one gratuitous mention of current events. And that is about the fact that there is a vast number of people, as there always would be after any election, a vast number of people in the United States and elsewhere who regret who the president is right now, President Trump. And they've been calling not just for a change of president, but a change in the system ever since he was elected. At first, they were calling for the electoral college, the way in which the president is elected, to be utterly upended, changed thrown out and replaced with something else. But just yesterday, interestingly enough, a suggestion was put forward that a bipartisan committee, that seems fair, doesn't it? Bipartisan, a bipartisan committee be established that will be able to vet and veto candidates for the presidency before they ever stood for election. In other words, an unelected panel deciding who would be a fit and proper person to stand for the presidency. So this is to say that there's something deficient with the process that exists right now, according to these people. That uh, I think if you've committed certain crimes, you can't stand for uh, elected office, including for the presidency. Uh, The fact that the media is supposed to have some responsibility in trying to find out about the background of these people that, that run for high office. Whatever the case, some people are very unhappy with president trump and so they want to change the system so that a president trump style person can never again be elected now in in many ways none of this debate is particularly new ever since democracy was invented people have lost elections and so blamed the system rather than their own candidates or policies it's the system or the stupidity of the voter that is the error not their policies Now, they may be right. There may be a flaw in the system. Perhaps the voters who are voting are voting in ignorance of what actually the policies happen to be. So they might be right in some ways, but as a criticism, it's a poor one because it can always be thrust forth whenever anyone loses an election. It's rather like a football team losing a match and then blaming not merely the referee but the rules themselves. It was the rules that was against them. If only there was a by-team committee who could decide who was a fit and proper person to play for either side, then we could have fair football games. And it should be telling if the losing football team consistently complains that the rules themselves, the rules of football themselves, are unfair. Now, this doesn't really happen that often. Of course, the analogy fails in certain ways. However, if your first response upon losing an election or being on the side of the person who lost is to blame the system then that should be revealing and it should give you pause about what's motivating you apart from just the fact that you lost now I'll, I'll put it up on the screen but on on twitter david deutsch commented um in 2018 that hyperbole is basically a sign of our times he wrote in response to someone who said we live in an age of darkness and a lot of people are talking about this that that trump how in some way is ushering in a new age of darkness Uh, David uh, disagreed with um, just the general. The general, we weren't talking. He wasn't talking about Trump in any way, I don't think. Um, But he did say, "quote We are not living in an age of darkness, but in an age of hyperbole." End quote. And perhaps the most hyperbolic thing one can say of their political opponents, certainly these days, is that they are Nazis. Godwin's law is the notion that this happens inevitably, in fact, in online discussions. Of course, Godwin's law is no law, actually. It's just a funny reproach uh, of how to behave online. But the Trump is Hitler trope, it's no joke to some people, it seems. Some really do need to understand the history of Hitler and how he is categorically different in many ways to Donald Trump. Some really do need to understand that there is no actual parallel here between Trump and Hitler. It's it's a ridiculous criticism to make, but it's being made more and more fervently for some strange reason. Initially, Hitler had checks on his power under German law, but he violated them over and again with violence, Uh, for example, in the Night of the Long Knives. And soon after that, in 1934, Germany's president Hindenburg died, and Hitler simply declared himself head of both the state and the government, and thus an absolute tyrant in Germany. Trump does not as Hitler did at the time, have a private army. He has not assassinated his political rivals and he has not dissolved or absorbed the powers of either the Congress, the Senate or the Supreme Court. This hyperbole nonetheless continues. Each side caricatures the other to some extent by exaggerating. Now, President Trump himself, of course, is a figure that does not always help to clarify things. Speaking of hyperbole, he speaks in the most hyperbolic terms that we generally ever hear a politician using. It's almost a trademark of his. Everything is the biggest or the best or the greatest. Now, now, of course, in some cases, in the case of the US in particular, it's quite right to talk about them being the biggest and the best and the greatest. But when President Trump claims elections that have not yet been held might be rigged, it has an air of hyperbole to it. It tends to undermine institutions, and is just as bad a sin as claiming we need to change the whole s- system when our candidate loses. Trump hasn't even lost yet, but he's setting things up so that if he loses, he can say, well, the system was the thing that was flawed. So again, systems might be flawed, but the solution is not to suggest that the entire system is altogether bad, but rather it's to identify the precise error that you think is there in the system and to propose a policy to correct it. That's how improvements work. In the case of democracy, how can it be improved? How can we come to identify errors in a democratic system and correct them? Well, let's take a deeper dive into that very question through what Popper had to say on the matter. So I'll read part of his article. His article can be found here in The Economist, and you should read the whole thing yourself. It was first published in 1988, and then it was published again just before the last presidential election in the United States in 2016. Now, as The Economist says here, and I'll just uh, read what the introduction to the article says, quote, the first book in English by Professor Sir Karl Popper was accepted for publication in London while Hitler's bombs were falling, and was published in 1945 under the title The Open Society and Its Enemies. The book was well received, but in this article, Sir Karl questions whether his central theory of democracy, which he does not characterise as the rule of the people, has been understood, end quote. So what Popper's going to do here is to, is to reimagine, re-explain what democracy actually means. Now, it doesn't matter that prior to Popper, people thought that democracy was about solving the who should rule question and about the rule of the many and all this kind of stuff. That doesn't matter. In the same way that when people tried to understand what science was and thought that it was about empiricism, it was about observing and deriving from those observations the laws of nature, despite the fact that that's what people thought science was and what some people still think science is today, or that what science amounts to is repeatedly observing things and extracting from those the laws of nature by extrapolation. It doesn't matter that that's what people think distinguishes science from non-science. If some people think the difference between science and non-science is that in science you use a method of induction and you repeatedly observe things, find trends, and then extrapolate natural laws from those observations, it doesn't matter that they think that that's what distinguishes science from everything else. They're wrong. (laughs) Science is distinguished from other things by the criterion of demarcation that Popper figured out, which is falsification, testability, being able to experimentally test your hypotheses. This is what separates science from non-science. And as David Deutsch refined further, although testable theories are a dime a dozen, what we're really looking for is hard to vary explanations of the physical world. And part of the hard to vary features of theories about physical reality is their experimental testability. And so this is what science is. Okay, so what that's got to do with this is just because many people think that democracy is about the rule of many people Popper's is about to explain that's not really what it's about that's not the essential characteristic of democracy nor why we should hope to have democracy rather than alternatives like tyrannies okay so let me read from the article um i won't be reading at all and just as with the beginning of infinity i'll uh i'll let you know when i'm cutting bits out so you might want to go to the article itself i'll put the link in the description and up there on the screen there's also uh, what you're looking for. That's the article you're looking for. Popper writes, my theory of democracy is very simple and easy for everybody to understand, but its fundamental problem is so different from the age-old theory of democracy, which everybody takes for granted, that it seems that this difference has not been grasped just because of the simplicity of the theory. It avoids high-sounding abstract words like rule, freedom, and reason. I do believe in freedom and reason, but I do not think that one can construct a simple, practical, and fruitful theory in these terms. They are too abstract and too prone to be misused, and, of course, nothing whatever can be gained by their definition. Pause there my reflection on this. Um, That's sine qua non, uh, an essential component, if we excuse the irony of saying that, of Popper's approach to philosophy. Getting caught up in definitions is a losing game, and it is the game played by so many other philosophers, the linguistic philosophers, which is to say most philosophers today. And see the last chapter of The Beginning of Infinity for more about that. Moving on. And Popper writes, quote, this article is divided into three main parts. The first sets out briefly what may be called the classical theory of democracy, the theory of the rule of the people. The second is a brief sketch of my more realistic theory, the third is in the main an outline of some practical applications of my theory in reply to the question, what practical difference does this new theory make? Okay, and then Popper goes into the first part, the classical theory. The classical theory is, in brief, the theory that democracy is the rule of the people, and that the people have a right to rule. For the claim that the people have this right, many and various reasons have been given. However, it will not be necessary for me to enter into these reasons here. Instead, I will briefly examine some of the historical background of the theory and some of the terminology. Plato was the first theoretician to make a system out of the distinctions between what he regarded as the main forms of the city-state. According to the number of rulers he distinguished between, number one, a monarchy, the rule of one good man, and tyranny, the distorted form of monarchy. T- two, the aristocracy, the rule of a few good men, and oligarchy, its distorted form. And three, democracy, the rule of the many, of all the people. Democracy did not have two forms, for the many always formed a rabble, and so democracy was distorted in itself. Pause there, just me reflecting on that. Um. So Plato didn't like democracy. He argued in the Republic, which some of us had to suffer through at university. He argued for philosopher kings, educated people who would justly and rightly rule over the masses, who couldn't be trusted with power. Okay, let's keep going. Popper writes, quote, if one looks more closely at this classification... And if one asks oneself, what problem was at the back of Plato's mind, then one finds that the following underlay not only Plato's classification and theory, but also those of everybody else. From Plato to Karl Marx and beyond, the fundamental problem has always been, who should rule the state? One of my main points will be that this problem must be replaced by a totally different one. Plato's answer was simple and naive. The best should rule. If possible, the best of all alone. Next choice. The best few, the aristocrats, but certainly not the many, the rabble, the demos. The Athenian practice had been, even before Plato's birth, precisely the opposite. The people, the demos, should rule. All important political decisions, such as war and peace, were made by the assembly of all full citizens. This is now called direct democracy. But we must never forget that the citizens formed a minority of the inhabitants, even of the natives. From the point of view here adopted, the important thing is that, in practice, the Athenian Democrats regarded their democracy as the alternative to tyranny, to arbitrary rule. In fact, they knew well that a popular leader might be invested with tyrannical powers by a popular vote. So they knew that a popular vote may be wrong-headed, even in the most important matters. The institution of ostracism recognized this. The ostracized person was banned as a matter of precaution only. He was neither tried nor regarded as guilty. The Athenians were right. Decisions arrived at democratically, and even the powers conveyed upon the government by a democratic vote, may be wrong. It is hard, if not impossible, to construct a constitution that safeguards against mistakes. This is one of the strongest reasons for founding the idea of democracy upon the principle of avoiding tyranny rather than upon a divine or morally legitimate right of the people to rule. Pause down my reflection. So that's really important. This is why the American Constitution, uh, the British tradition, is held up as being a form of excellence in governing, because it attempts to avoid tyrants. It's not perfect, but it's a way of trying to ensure that no one single person has so much power as to be able to become a tyrant over everyone else. This, therefore, is the idea of checks and balances. So democracy, regarded as the rule of the many, can make mistakes. But as we will come to see, democracy in the Papyrian sense is a system for correcting errors. If we consider democracy wrongly as the who should rule question, then if it has primacy, what we have and what Plato correctly identified as a problem is mob rule. For example, people could democratically vote away their rights or democratically vote to take away everyone's money or other wealth. And on that view, some of us argue that freedom or free markets or capitalism, liberty, whatever you want to call it, is morally prior to that kind of democracy. And that means we need certain things, we should call them rights, that cannot be voted away by any government. They are prior to the government. And to protect such things, a constitution is required and courts are needed to arbitrate. The rule of the many may be the best system, except for all those others that have been tried from time to time, but it cannot be an absolute ruler. For then, it would be a kind of tyranny with no protections for minorities. Okay, now I'm skipping a bit and Popper goes through all the ways in which the who should rule question has repeatedly come up over the years in the British tradition. Uh, and he writes, uh, after me skipping a couple of paragraphs, quote, Karl Marx, who was not a British politician, was still dominated by the old Platonic problem which he saw as who should rule, the good or the bad, the workers or the capitalists. And even those who rejected the state altogether in the name of freedom could not free themselves from the fetters of a misconceived old problem, for they called themselves anarchists, that is, opponents of all forms of rule. One can sympathize with their unsuccessful attempt to get away from the old problem, who should rule, onto part two, which Popper calls a more realistic theory. Quote, In The Open Society and Its Enemies, I suggested that an entirely new problem should be recognized as the fundamental problem of a rational political theory. The new problem, as distinct from the old who should rule, can be formulated as follows. How is the state to be constituted so that bad rulers can be got rid of without bloodshed, without violence? Okay, just pause there and repeating that. The new problem, with respect to democracy, as distinct from the old who should rule question, can be formulated as follows. How is the state to be constituted so that bad rulers can be got rid of without bloodshed, without violence? This, in contrast to the old question, is a thoroughly practical, almost technical problem. And the modern so-called democracies are all good examples of practical solutions to this problem, even though they were not consciously designed with this problem in mind. For they all adopt what is the simplest solution to the new problem, that is, the principle that the government can be dismissed by a majority vote. In theory, however, these modern democracies are still based on the old problem and on the completely impractical ideology that it is the people, the whole adult population, who are, or should by rights be, the real and ultimate and only legitimate rulers. But of course, nowhere do the people actually rule. It is the governments that rule, and unfortunately also bureaucrats, our civil servants, or our uncivil masters, as Winston Churchill called them, whom it is difficult, if not impossible, to make accountable for their actions. Pause there, my reflection yes controversially i think sometimes i make noises like this myself that the bureaucrats and again i'm allowing myself in this episode to be a little bit parochial a little bit contemporary and remind people that in 2020 we had a coronavirus where bureaucrats became far more powerful seemingly than they had been certainly in my lifetime anyway Um, the chief health officers and their deputies were the people who were getting up in front of the demos each and every day and, and informing us of new restrictions, almost by fiat. And the politicians were, uh, at least in the place that I occupy, in New South Wales and uh, in Victoria in Australia, um, there seemed to be very little resistance. And this, this concerned me. It concerned me because, as Popper says there, It is difficult, if not impossible, to make them accountable for their actions. They aren't accountable. So if they make a mistake, well, apparently it goes to the politician who is responsible. The politician can always turn around and say, well, I was just following the expert advice of the chief bureaucrat, of the chief scientist, of the chief health officer, so it's not my fault. What would you want me to do, not take the advice of the expert? But the expert can always say, well, I was just giving the best advice I had at the time. It's ultimately the politician's decision as to whether or not they enact this policy or not. So here we have a violation of what I would regard as a violation of Popper's criterion. No one's accountable. And this is a problem. (laughs) OK, rather than me going on a tirade, let me continue to read uh, Popper's article. Quote, what are the consequences of this simple and practical theory of government? My way of putting the problem and my simple solution do not, of course, clash with the practice of Western democracies such as the unwritten constitution of Britain and the many written constitutions which took the British Parliament more or less as their model. It is this practice, and not their theory, which my theory, my problem and its solution, tries to describe. And for this reason I think that I may call it a theory of democracy, even though it is emphatically not a theory of the rule of the people, but rather the rule of law that postulates the bloodless dismissal of the government by a majority vote. My theory easily avoids the paradoxes and difficulties of the whole theory. For instance, such problems as, what has to be done if ever the people vote to establish a dictatorship? Of course, this is not likely to happen if the vote is free, but it has happened. And what if it does happen? Most constitutions, in fact, require far more than a majority vote to amend or change constitutional provisions, and thus would demand perhaps a two-thirds or even a three-quarters qualified majority for a vote against democracy. But this demand shows that they provide for such a change, and at the same time, they do not conform to the principle that the unqualified majority will is the ultimate source of power, that the people, through a majority vote, are entitled to rule. All these theoretical difficulties are avoided if one abandons the question who should rule and replaces it by the new and practical problem. How can we best avoid situations in which a bad ruler causes too much harm? When we say that the best solution known to us is a constitution that allows a majority vote to dismiss the government, then we do not say that the majority vote will always be right. We do not even say that it will usually be right. We say only that this very imperfect procedure is the best so far invented. Winston Churchill once said jokingly that democracy is the worst form of government, with the exception of all other known forms of government. And this is the point. Anybody who has ever lived under another form of government, that is, under a dictatorship which cannot be removed without bloodshed, will know that a democracy, imperfect though it is, is worth fighting for, and I believe worth dying for. This, however, is only my personal conviction. I should regard it as wrong to try and persuade others of it. We could base our whole theory on this, that there are only two alternatives known to us, either a dictatorship or some form of democracy. And we do not base our choice on the goodness of democracy, which may be doubtful, but solely on the evilness of a dictatorship, which is certain. Not only because the dictator is bound to make use of his power, but because a dictator, even if he were benevolent, would rob all others of their responsibility, and thus of their human rights and duties. This is a sufficient basis for deciding in favor of democracy. That is, a rule of law that enables us to get rid of the government. No majority, however large, ought to be qualified to abandon this rule of law." Okay, and pause there. Um, Popper then goes into a lengthy discussion of proportional representation, uh, which is what David talks about in the beginning of infinity. So I don't want to repeat that here now. And and so instead of reading that part, I'm gonna skip all the way to where Popper talks about, talks about the two-party system. He's just criticized the idea of minority government In other words, governments that are made up of coalitions, and we've talked about the problem of coalitions and compromises before, so it's better to have a majority government who can be held accountable for the policies that they enact. And so when they fail, they can be held responsible for that, and they can take accountability for it as well. So this is why majority government is better than coalitions, where people can all say, I'm not responsible for this bad policy because it's a compromise and I had to agree with these people over here that I don't particularly like, but in order to form government, we had to compromise, but the compromise wasn't my idea. I wanted to do this other different policy over there. Okay, so having established that majority rule is better, let's read what Popper has to say about the two-party system, and he writes... Quote, in order to make a majority government probable, we need something approaching a two-party system, as in Britain and the United States. Since the existence of the practice of proportional representation makes such a possibility hard to attain, I suggest that, in the interests of parliamentary responsibility, we should resist the perhaps tempting idea that democracy demands proportional representation. Instead, we should strive for a two-party system, or at least for an approximation to it, for such a system encourages a continual process of self-criticism by the two parties. Such a view will, however, provoke frequently voiced objections to the two-party system that merit examination. A two-party system suppresses the formation of other parties. This is correct, but considerable changes are apparent within the two major parties in Britain as well as the United States. So the repression need not be a denial of flexibility. The point is that in a two-party system, the defeated party is liable to take an electoral defeat seriously. So it may look for an internal reform of its aims, which is an ideological reform. If the party is defeated twice in succession, or even three times, the search for new ideas may become frantic, which obviously is a healthy development. This is likely to happen, even if the loss of votes was not very great. Under a system with many parties, and with coalitions, this is not likely to happen. Especially when the loss of votes is small, both the party bosses and the electorate are inclined to change quietly. They regard it as part of the game, since none of the parties had clear responsibilities. Pause there, my reflection, yes. So again, we get into this idea of compromise. If you are not clearly responsible, you as the leader or you as the party for a particular policy that fails, then you can always revert back to saying, well, let's actually try my policy, even if you don't have power to get your policy in. And so it just becomes this vicious cycle of compromise and refusing to take responsibility, coming up with another compromise, refusing to take responsibility, and so on. And so I'll just uh, finish with the final paragraph that... Popper wrote in this article, Quote, It is also said a two party system is incompatible with the idea of an open society, with the openness for new ideas, and with the idea of pluralism. Reply Both Britain and the United States are very open to new ideas. Complete openness would, of course, be self defeating, as would be complete freedom. Also, cultural openness and political openness are two different things, and more important even than opening wider and wider the political debate may be a proper attitude towards the political day of judgment, end quote. Okay, so now let's segue from Popper straight to David Deutsch in the beginning of Infinity. And David writes, So let us reconsider collective decision-making in terms of Popper's criterion instead. Instead of wondering earnestly which of the self-evident yet mutually inconsistent criteria of fairness, representativeness, and so on, are the most self-evident, so that they can be entrenched, we judge such criteria, along with all other actual or proposed political institutions, according to how well they promote the removal of bad rules and bad policies. To do this, they must embody traditions of peaceful, critical discussion of rulers, policies, and the political institutions themselves. In this view, Any interpretation of the democratic process as merely a way of consulting the people to find out who should rule, or what policies to implement, misses the point of what is happening. An election does not play the same role in a rational society as consulting an oracle or a priest, or obeying orders from the king did in earlier societies. The essence of democratic decision-making is not the choice made by the system at elections, but the ideas created between elections. And elections are merely one of the many institutions whose function is to allow such ideas to be created, tested, modified and rejected. The voters are not a fount of wisdom from which the right policies can be empirically derived. They are attempting, fallibly, to explain the world and thereby improve it. They are, both individually and collectively, seeking the truth, or should be if they are rational. And there is an objective truth of the matter, Problems are soluble. Society is not a zero-sum game. The civilization of the Enlightenment did not get where it is today by cleverly sharing out the wealth, votes, or anything else that was in dispute when it began. It got here by creating ex nihilo. In particular, what voters are doing in elections is not synthesising a decision of a superbeing society. They are choosing which experiments are to be attempted next and, principally, which are to be abandoned because there is no longer a good explanation for why they are best. The politicians and their policies are those experiments. When one uses no-go theorems such as arrows to model real decision-making, one has to assume quite unrealistically that none of the decision-makers in the group is able to persuade the others to modify their preferences or so to create new preferences that are easier to agree on. The realistic case is that neither the preferences nor the options need be the same at the end of a decision-making process as they were at the beginning. Pause down my reflection. Yes, and so... This, in a nutshell, is why the traditional way of thinking about decision-making as selecting among existing options is completely false. People being creative, as they go through the decision-making process, are going to improve the theories they have on offer, the choices they have before them. They're going to freely create new knowledge, freely choose, freely bring into their will new content, new ideas. They're the ones that do it. They are the causal agents. They're the thing in the universe which if you had to explain how was that choice arrived at, It was the fact that that person or that committee or that group of people decided upon that choice. They chose that. It wasn't an outworking of the laws of physics. Although the laws of physics were still being obeyed by everything in that system, the real causal explanation comes down to a creative agent, namely a person or a group of people. Okay, I'm skipping a number of paragraphs here. and I'm going straight to the section on proportional representation because uh, this is something we avoided in the Popper article. And David writes about this, Proportional representation is often defended on the grounds that it leads to coalition governments and compromise policies. But compromises, amalgams of the policies of the contributors, have an undeservedly high reputation. Though they are certainly better than immediate violence, they are generally, as I have explained, bad policies. If a policy is no one's idea of what will work, then why should it work? But that is not the worst of it. The key defect of compromise policies is that when one of them is implemented and fails, no one learns anything because no one ever agreed with it. Thus, compromise policies shield the underlying explanations which do at least seem good to some faction from being criticised and abandoned. The system used to elect members of the legislatures of most countries in the British political tradition is that each district or constituency in the country is entitled to one seat in the legislature. And that seat goes to the candidate with the largest number of votes in that district. This is called the plurality voting system. Plurality meaning largest number of votes. Often called the first past the post system because there was no prize for any runner up and no second round of voting, both of which feature in other electoral systems for the sake of increasing the proportionality of outcomes. "'Plurality voting typically over-represents "'the two largest parties "'compared with the proportion of votes they receive. "'Moreover, it is not guaranteed "'to avoid the population paradox "'and is even capable of bringing one party to power "'when another has received far more votes in total.'" Pause down my reflection. Precisely what happened with the 2016 election and people were so upset with the Electoral College because although the loser, Hillary Clinton, got the largest number of votes overall, the system, the, the Electoral College system, actually enabled Donald Trump to take power. Back to the book. These features are often cited as arguments against plurality voting and in favour of a more proportional system, either literal proportional representation or other schemes, such as transferable vote systems and runoff systems, which have the effect of making the representation of voters in the legislature more proportional. However, under Popper's criterion, that is all insignificant in comparison with the greater effectiveness of plurality voting at removing bad governments and policies. Let me trace the mechanism of that advantage more explicitly. Following a plurality voting election, the usual outcome is that the party with the largest total number of votes has an overall majority in the legislature, and therefore takes sole charge. All the losing parties are removed entirely from power. This is rare under proportional representation, because some of the parties in the old coalition are usually needed in the new one. Consequently, the logic of plurality is that politicians and political parties have little chance of gaining any share in power unless they can persuade a substantial proportion of the population to vote for them. That gives all parties the incentive to find better explanations, or at least to convince more people of their existing ones. For if they fail, they will be relegated to powerlessness at the next election. Pause my reflection. So that's what it's all about. If we have coalitions, if we have 10 parties that have to come together and share power in order to form government, then at the next election, not all of them will be voted out, only some. And we could expect that some of them will retain power and therefore do not need to change their policies. So even though a vast number of people might want to remove those politicians from power, and in fact, a majority might want to remove them from power, they won't be removed from power. They'll remain there. So if the party with the greatest number of votes still only has 10 percent of the votes because there are twenty plus parties and all the other parties have five percent or less of the vote this is a real problem it means that even if ninety percent of people haven't voted for the party that gets the most number of votes namely ten percent of the votes we can't get rid of that party from power because it will just continue to have this minority of people who continue to vote for it this is why the two-party system is better this is why coalitions are bad why compromises are bad why the ability to remove bad policies, bad politicians, politicians you don't want, is the criterion of a democratic system. If you can't get rid of that bad government or that those bad people in power because they've only got 10% of the vote, this is a violation of Popper's criterion. It needs to be easy to remove these people if the majority disagree with them. But these these systems that are not a plurality voting system that are proportional voting systems are a violation. It's not to say the plurality system is perfect, or even good, as Popper would say. It's just that it's better than any of the other systems that are out there. All the other systems that are out there, there are knockdown criticisms of them. And that's why we should defend two party systems first past the post voting. Okay, skipping a little bit, and David writes, Under a proportional system, small changes in public opinion seldom account for anything, and power can easily shift in the opposite direction to public opinion. What counts most is the changes in the opinion of the leader of the third largest party. This shields not only that leader, but most of the incumbent politicians and policies from being removed from power through voting. They are more often removed by losing support within their own party, or by shifting alliances between parties. So in that respect, the system badly fails Popper's Criterion. Under plurality voting, it is the other way around. The all or nothing nature of the constituency elections and the consequent low representation of small parties makes the overall outcome sensitive to small changes in opinion. When there is a small shift in opinion, away from the ruling party, it is usually in real danger of losing power completely. Under proportional representation, there are strong incentives for the system's characteristic unfairness to persist or to become worse over time. For example, if a small faction defects from a large party, it may then end up with more chance of having its policies tried out than it would if its supporters had remained within the original party. This results in a proliferation of small parties in the legislature, which in turn increases the necessity for coalitions, including coalitions with the smaller parties, which further increases their disproportionate power. In Israel, the country with the world's most proportional electoral system, this effect Has been so severe that at the time of writing, even the two largest parties combined cannot muster an overall majority. And yet, under that system, which has sacrificed all other considerations in favour of the supposed fairness of proportionality, even proportionality itself is not always achieved. In the election of 1992, the right wing parties as a whole received a majority of the popular vote but the left-wing ones had a majority of the seats. This was because a greater proportion of the fringe parties that failed to reach the threshold for receiving even one seat were right-wing. In contrast, the error correcting attributes of the plurality voting system have a tendency to avoid the paradoxes to which the system is theoretically prone, and quickly to undo them when they do happen, because all those incentives are the other way around. For instance, in the Canadian province of Manitoba in 1926, the Conservative Party received more than twice as many votes as any other party. But won none of the 17 seats allocated to that province. As a result, it lost power in the national parliament, despite having received the most votes nationally too. And yet, even in that rare, extreme case, the disproportionateness between the two main parties' representations in parliament was not that great. The average liberal voter received 1.31 times as many members of parliament as the average conservative one. And what happened next? In the following election, the Conservative Party again had the largest number of votes nationally, but this time that gave it an overall majority in Parliament. Its vote had increased by 3% of the electorate, but its representation increased by 17% of the total number of seats, bringing the party's share of seats back into rough proportionality and satisfying Popper's criterion with flying colours. Okay, skipping more um, about voting systems and just getting into some political philosophy here. And David writes, In science, we do not consider it surprising that a community of scientists with different initial hopes and expectations, continually in dispute about their rival theories, gradually come into near unanimous agreement over a steady stream of issues, yet still continue to disagree all the time. It is not surprising because in their case, there are observable facts that they can use to test their theories. They converge with each other on any given issue because they are all converging on the objective truth. In politics, it is customary to be cynical about that sort of convergence being possible. But that is a pessimistic view. Throughout the West, a great deal of philosophical knowledge that is nowadays taken for granted by almost everyone say that slavery is an abomination, or that women should be free to go out to work, or that autopsies should be legal, or that promotion in the armed forces should not depend on skin colour, was highly controversial only a matter of decades ago. And originally, the opposite positions were taken for granted. A successful truth-seeking system works its way towards broad consensus or near unanimity, the one state of public opinion that is not subject to decision-theoretic paradoxes and where the will of the people makes sense. So convergence in the broad consensus over time is made possible by the fact that all concerned are gradually eliminating errors in their positions and converging on objective truths. Facilitating that process by meeting Popper's criterion, as well as possible, is more important than which of two contending factors with near-equal support gets its way at a particular election. Pause down my reflection. This is one of the most contentious parts of what might be called realist philosophy in the broadest sense. Many people are realists when it comes to science, but not necessarily realists when it comes to morality. That there is a best thing to want. There is an objective good out there. Religious people are often moral realists in that sense. They believe there's an objective difference between good and bad, and there is an objective good that we should strive for. But when we get to politics, even some people who would endorse that notion don't necessarily think that in politics, that there's an objective good that we could be searching for. But this is an argument that, in fact, there is, because people tend to converge on certain political opinions that hitherto might have been regarded as completely irreconcilable. We're going to see in the next chapter, which is on uh, beauty and aesthetics, that there's an objectivity to aesthetics as well. Um, And so a a realist is someone who thinks there's an objectivity to just about everything. Okay, so I'm skipping a little bit and getting just to the last... um Paragraph. And David writes, apportionment systems, electoral systems, and other institutions of human cooperation were, for the most part, designed or evolved to cope with day-to-day controversy, to cobble together ways of proceeding without violence, despite intense disagreement about what would be best. And the best of them succeeded as well as they do because they have, often unintentionally, implemented solutions with enormous reach. Consequently, coping with controversy in the present has become merely a means to an end. The purpose of deferring to the majority in democratic systems should be to approach unanimity in the future by giving all concerned the incentive to abandon bad ideas and to conjecture better ones. Creatively changing the options is what allows people in real life to cooperate in ways that no-go theorems seem to say are impossible, and it is what allows individual minds to choose at all. The growth of the body of knowledge about which there is unanimous agreement does not entail a dying down of controversy. On the contrary, human beings will never disagree any less than they do now. And that is a very good thing. If those institutions do, do, as they seem to, fulfill the hope that it is possible for changes to be for the better on balance, then human life can improve without limit as we advance from misconception to ever better misconception. And that's the end of the chapter. A great way to end as well. And David's talked about this before. Rather than saying moving from Um, from explanation to ever better explanation or from theory to ever better theory or from policy to ever better better policy. He said there what he said in other places. It would be better if we all just recognise that everything that we think is our best idea right now is nonetheless a misconception. And so we're moving from misconception to better misconception all the time. And this idea too that even though disagreements can be intense at any given parochial moment in time, We can expect that even if a democratic vote is very, very close, and we might think that 49% of people, or, you know, 49.9% of people, or whatever number you'd like to have, less than 50% of people are the losers and therefore failed to convince the rest of society um, of their ideas and failed to be convinced themselves. And so it seems like we have this irreconcilable difference. Nonetheless, over time... People can use their creative minds to, in their own mind, by their own lights, come to be persuaded. And therefore, we come to a a certain amount of unanimity in society. Um, We come to all agree that certain things are good things. Slavery is bad. Raising our children in a certain way is good respecting reason and logic is better than uh, deferring to superstition, and so on and so forth. That in time, people can be persuaded of the objective good. So at at this time right now in 2020, uh, there are a number of elections coming up uh, in my country and around the world. I hope that people read this chapter, uh, no matter what side of the political debate they're on, to come to understand which systems are more or less democratic what ways in which we might improve decision-making ourselves personally or as a society. And one simple rule of thumb is, is this change that you're suggesting going to make it easier to remove a bad ruler or not? And if we've got committees of non-elected officials making decisions and those officials can't be easily removed by the voters, then that's an undemocratic system. And in your own life, if you're confronted with some kind of challenge and you've got a number of choices before you, don't think that you simply have to choose, that there's this false dichotomy. There are only these two things, these two ways forward that you can see. It's a feature of Popper's philosophy, David Deutsch's philosophy, that there's always a third way. You can creative come up creatively come up with the third way. In fact, that really is your purpose as a human being, to creatively come up with better options in your own life, and perhaps better options for other people as well. All right, so let's end it there. And next time, we're on to perhaps the most controversial of all the chapters that exist in the book. Many of them are controversial, of course, not controversial in a bad way, controversial in the way of making you think that what you have up until now thought was the right thing to think, in fact, is flawed in some way. And this idea that there is an objectivity to aesthetics is certainly something that today needs to be defended. And David has a really interesting way of talking about, is there an objectivity to beauty? Is there a way of actually trying to come up with a criterion for beauty, attractiveness, aesthetics? Okay, until then, (music) bye-bye. As always, thank you to everyone on Patreon who's been supporting me. I've got a couple more Patreons right now. Um, And anyone who'd like to give a PayPal donation, please know that it's accepted with great gratitude, especially right now. Okay, thanks everyone. Bye-bye.